Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. there thank you for tuning in to this week's zonal marking podcast sadly today we are not joined by tom warville our numbers wonder kid has picked up a an injury playing football last week and that needs a bit of recovery time so we are not joined by tom warville but we would like to wish him well our friend and teammate after uh, after that injury hashtag anims warville it's just me and the Athletics' number one MC, Michael Cox, a true statesman of football tactics writing. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Hi, Ali. Very well, thank you. Uh, well, I'm well, too. Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that was rude of me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, We're both better than poor Tom, who we do wish very well. Hopefully, he's back soon. We do. I was thrilled this week uh, to be described in a profile written about you in the New Statesman magazine as your friend and colleague. Now, we hadn't really discussed the friendship part yet, but we have enjoyed being colleagues. So maybe it's the, the natural next step. Um, probably entertain a third, I'd say. What <laughs> have you been writing recently, Coxie, on the athletic site and app? Well, trying to catch up really with an incredible weekend of football. I mean, just every big club, there, there seems to be a some major story in terms of the tactics of the side. So I was looking at Liverpool's defending and why they managed to concede seven goals against Aston Villa. Obviously, Manchester United, I think there's probably more of an overall issue there in terms of the management and the direction they're going in. Um, and also look at Manchester City, who, you know, that game against Leeds, I think on any other weekend would be considered, a, you know, probably the most exciting game of the weekend. But it kind of got relegated to third behind the the Liverpool and Manchester United games. So, um, yeah, so much to get stuck into and always exciting at the start of the season. You know, particularly now the transfer window has come to an end and we kind of mm. see how teams are shaping up for the season. Lots of good stuff from you on site at the moment. And, of course, your colleagues, uh, the writers of The Athletic. And if you're listening to this pod, but you're not a subscriber and you'd like to give it a go, if you'd like to read what Michael's writing uh, and many more, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is what to type into your browser. You'll find a very tasty offer on there at the moment. So do give that a go if you're not already up to date with all things athletic. Uh, just a quick one, Michael, on the sort of scheduling around the, the Premier League 
these days with uh, the 3pm blackout temporarily suspended for the most part although not exclusively we had a few games running simultaneously on Sunday but for the most part it feels like you can if you have the time and the wherewithal watch pretty much every single game at the moment and with the results that we're seeing it feels a bit like going 12 rounds doesn't it if you if you watch as many games as possible uh, for someone like yourself who has to be across it all but who also has a life um, how are you approaching this situation where all the games are on tv more or less uh, and you kind of need to be across a lot of it because it's all pretty crazy at the moment yeah i mean the good thing is that none of us really have that much of a life at the moment do we so um <laughs> yeah it's not too much of an issue i mean the funny thing i think is there's quite a late shift in terms of when these games are, are scheduled to kick off because you know you look at the fixtures for two or three weeks time and they've still got a load of saturday 3 p.m games down which probably won't be the case they'll be moved to tv but it's always the ones right at the end of the day that are the kind of least exciting mm. so like the saturday night uh, just gone was newcastle burnley it's slightly difficult to motivate yourself to watch that having already watched four games that that day i think it'd mm. probably be easier if that was the early kickoff but yeah i've been trying to watch as as much as possible and i think this year there's a lot of quite interesting quite good sides even the mid table the bottom half sides there's a lot of interesting managers and uh, some exciting new signings as well so yeah i've been really enjoying it okay well on the pod today we're going to take this time to reflect on what we've seen so far in the Premier League. We break for internationals with most sides, although not all, having played four rounds of fixtures. And it has been an extraordinary campaign so far in terms of goals. I can hear our friend and colleague Tom Warville in my ear shouting small sample size at me. So I'm going to just drop that in there now. It's a caveat that we all understand. This is a small sample size, but it's still worthy enough for discussion. Uh, Michael, what do the numbers say about the season so far in the Premier League? Without even studying the numbers, you can tell that there's just been so many goals going in. But yeah, the numbers back it up. It's at the moment 10% of the way through the campaign, 38 games out of uh, 380. It's uh, 3.79 average on goals per game. I mean, that is just crazy compared to previous years over the course of an entire campaign for the last 28 seasons it's been somewhere between 2.45 and 2.82 goals per game and we're now at 3.79 so yeah of course it's a small sample size of course it probably won't continue like this but even beyond that I think it's just been notable that there have been some extraordinary games so yeah it's been an incredible start to the season. Well in your role the question then becomes why what is the theory behind this high goal scoring rate asterisk small sample size uh, i imagine there are a few different factors that come into play when thinking about this some of them tactical some of them circumstantial run me through some of the reasons behind it in your eyes yeah i mean it's been interesting to see a lot of people speculating about it i mean there's been uh, some talk about the increased number of sides who are defending high up the pitch and getting caught out with balls in behind i think that's been the case in particular for Southampton and Liverpool. Others have pointed to the lack of crowd and maybe that means, you know, sides can switch off a little bit earlier. Maybe it means that if you're travelling away to Old Trafford or Anfield, it's less intimidating. You can be a bit more attacking. There's more of an open game and more goals because of that. And I think the lack of fitness, some people have mentioned, is maybe a, an issue as well because it's been such an unusual pre-season um, for all the clubs and, and particularly those involved in Europe at the back end of last season. But I think when you look at the underlying numbers, those explanations don't necessarily stand up. Okay, so what do the underlying numbers say? Our old friend expected goals. Uh, Is is this 
high goal rate reflected in the XG figures? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of XG chat coming up. So if you're not into that, I'd recommend stopping here. In fact, maybe unsubscribing from the podcast altogether, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where things get interesting. In terms of the, the standard goals per game rate, it's gone up from last season 2.72 to 3.79. But in terms of the expected goals, it's risen very, very slightly. It's gone from 2.78 to 2.81. I mean, that is a very, very minimal increase, particularly when we go back to the small sample size and only 38 uh, games have been played. So what that basically says is that, you know, a lot of sides are outperforming their expected goals. And in fact, when you break it down further, of the 20 sides, 16 of them are outperforming their expected goals in attack. Of the four exceptions, West Ham are pretty much on track. Fulham and Southampton are kind of within 0.2 of it, so they're not really underperforming by a significant amount. The only real exception is Sheffield United, who have had obviously a really disappointing start, no points so far. Yeah, they just they haven't been converting their chances very well. And you can also break it down in, in a different way, which is looking at kind of individual rounds of fixtures. So uh, our friend Matt Furness from Opsa pointed out that the two biggest XG overperformances going back to the start of 2013-14, which is when Opta have this data from, two rounds where it's been outperformed the most have both come this season. So the second round of fixtures and the fourth round of fixtures, the one we've just had. So that basically shows that, yeah, we are on a kind of unprecedented level of, uh, yeah, good finishing, bad goalkeeping, uh, a bit of luck, however you want to put it. It's more about, you know, the shots and where they're ending up. Um, rather than necessarily how many shots and from what locations teams are having shots from. You might be, in the eyes of, of some people, something of a, a pioneer in terms of uh, online football writing, but you're a terrible salesman. Because if someone doesn't like <laughs> listening to XG, maybe it's worth pressing pause on the podcast, but it's definitely not worth unsubscribing. For example, just last week, we did a deep dive into AC Milan, the history of that club, both tactically and in terms of managers, and its reawakening, uh, as told by James Horncastle. I might suggest that that would be a great thing to listen to if you haven't already, and if you don't like XG numbers. Uh, back to the topic in hand, uh, it, it has been uh, only four rounds of fixtures. Because of that, and because of these high goal numbers compared to XG numbers, I imagine that there have been a few matches where specifically we have really increased the goal rate due to a couple of a couple of screamers going in or or, or or something like that. Are there certain games that have really increased the goals rate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to reiterate what I just said about, you know, or what Matt Furness said, I should say, about uh, match day four, the one we've just had. I mean, even just looking at that Sunday, you know, anyone who watched Aston Villa's 7-2 victory over Liverpool will have seen a really good performance by Villa and certainly worthy of the victory, but also three goals that were heavily deflected and, and you wouldn't really expect to be flying in the top corner from those positions. So that game had nine goals from 4.5 XG. Earlier in the day, Manchester United won Tottenham 6. That was seven goals, also from 4.5 XG. It's worth pointing out, obviously, there are big overperformances in terms of the expected goals numbers here uh, by the by the two attacks or the four attacks in those games, the 4.5 XG is still quite high. I mean, mm. that is the recipe for a, you know, a real exciting game, if not necessarily a nine goal thriller as we had at Villa Park. But it's not just about those real high scoring games. I mean, earlier in the day, Arsenal beat Sheffield United 2-1 
I don't know if you saw this game, Ali, but it was dreadfully boring. I mean, there was barely a chance in the entire game. So that ended with 0.75 XG, which was the lowest of the season so far. And we got three goals from that. And on another day, that could have been a nil-nil. There's still been no nil-nil so far this season. And I think what happened at the end of that game at the Emirates was particularly telling because David McGoldrick smashed in a brilliant goal from outside the box. Now, I'm a big fan of David McGoldrick. I thought it was excellent last season. But he took about 30 games to get a single goal last year. And I think he ended on two goals for the season from about 8.7 XG. So if even David McGoldrick is smashing in, you know, 0.1 XG chances from outside the box, you know that, uh, yeah, something crazy is going on. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm a little conflicted here as well because like, I'm all for this complete carnage. Like Sunday is such a good example, as you mentioned, those two games. I'm all for it. Like I'm up for that continuing. But I also worship at the altar of variance and I listen to the sermons given by Tom Warville. And I know deep down that it probably will not be sustained. And for example, maybe we'll have a nil-nil or two coming up uh, in the recent or in the forthcoming, I should say, the subsequent sets of fixtures but I'm all for it to be honest and I'd like to know from you Michael who the who the sort of main offenders are in terms of teams there have been some notably poor defensive performance teams really sort of folding like a pack of cards uh, at the mere sight of the opposition bearing down on their goal or winning the ball back and moving it forward in transition uh, West Brom newly promoted from the championship they've let in 13 goals already yeah, and in every game, really, they have looked quite prone to conceding. I mean, three against Leicester, five against Everton, three against Chelsea, having gone 3-0 up in that game, um, and another two away at Southampton at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it seems quite chaotic at the back. Slevin Bilic, obviously a very uh, formidable centre-half in his own day. He, I mean, surprisingly, his move to a three-man defence for this season or for the opening game at least, kept it for the next two. Now he's gone back to a back four. It seems a little bit confused there. I mean, you probably see more of them than me last year, Ali, with mm. your EFL expertise. I mean, our West Brom guy, Steve Maley, was very surprised that they switched to a back three for this season. Yeah, but I, I do just wonder if, obviously not for someone like Bielsa, who has one way of playing and will stick to it, but I, I do think it is... It is a, such a large leap up in quality from the second tier to the top tier. And you can see how, for a manager, having essentially been a dominant team, as all promoted sides tend to be, you can see how you could overthink the step up and see how you might sort of try and get in front of, you know, the potential problems with not having as much of the ball and spending much more time defending. Uh, and therefore, how you might think uh, 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 bolstering that back line with another player could work quite well. Of course, we've done a, a pod before on the rise of five-man defences and, and to what extent they have been effective in certain ways and less so in other ways. But it, I guess, especially with a West Brom side who have really maintained the same core of players. They have made a few signings this summer, the majority of them making loan deals permanent. So it is the same group of players 
to a large extent who won promotion from the championship and they were a team who had a lot of the ball generally controlled games were very comfortable in possession had a real sort of talent advantage over many teams at that level and were able to make that count in games i didn't consider them last year to be an excellent defensive side at championship level now the numbers show that they were perfectly good i think they conceded 45 goals in 46 games that's obviously a, a functioning defense at a high level but watching them it never felt like they were that sturdy i must say so it's a bit of a maybe i'm maybe i'm relying on the eye test too much here but i I, I wouldn't have said before the season started, Coxie, oh, watch out for West Brom. They're very good defensively. I probably would have said they've got some some beautiful players to watch in midfield and further forward on the ball. And I'll be a little bit worried about how they might cope defensively. So um, th that's certainly been proven right so far. And yeah, as I say, I just think you you can understand why you would make those sorts of changes to try and, as I say, get ahead of the, the problem of the step up in quality. But of course, maybe if you've got the same group of players and they've had success playing one way, that's only going to, to sort of confuse them. And, and suddenly the, the strength that you had last year is has gone. But hopefully they'll improve over the next few weeks. As you say, they have switched back to four at the back and I think that would suit a lot of the players that they have at their disposal. Um, surprisingly, as well as uh, a newly promoted side, who you wouldn't be too surprised to have struggled with the step up, we've also got Liverpool and Manchester United, who have both conceded 11 goals, which is scarcely believable. Uh, Man United have only played three games uh, and conceded 11 goals. Liverpool, the champions, conceding seven in one game against Aston Villa, of course, this weekend. You wrote about Liverpool's defensive record on the Athletic site earlier this week. What's the story there? I mean, when you look at Liverpool's title-winning campaign and you look at the underlying numbers, which we obviously like to do, here they dipped a lot towards the end of last season and it was slightly difficult to know how like how seriously to take that because obviously they'd pretty much wrapped up the league by boxing day they'd literally won the league i think with six games to go so you didn't want to pay too much attention to these numbers for a side who you know obviously didn't have that much to play for but there have been some worrying signs so far this season i mean 11 goals is an anomaly, really. There were three crazy deflections against Aston Villa, which you know probably won't be repeated in in uh, subsequent games. But there's been an unusual number of individual errors. I mean, Van Dyke against Leeds for that Bamford uh, equaliser, I think it was second equaliser. Andy Robertson did something kind of similar against Arsenal, just presented the ball to Alex Lacazette eight yards out with with no real danger before that. Um, and most obviously Adrian's error against Aston Villa for the opening goal in that 7-2, just a really poor pass out of the back. You probably think that Alisson wouldn't have done the same. But I think when you look beyond that, there have been some kind of structural problems. Um, a lot of people talked about the high line and, you know, runners in behind Liverpool, but they have played that way in recent years. I think really the the more concerning thing is, is the lack of pressure on the ball at times, particularly on the opposition holding midfielder. I mean, uh, Calvin Phillips of Leeds, I think, enjoyed far more time and space than he would have expected in that 4-3. And I think Liverpool got punished because of that. And I think on a, on a kind of wider level, I think Liverpool are quite unusual in the sense that they've played almost the same system with the same players for two or three years now. Obviously, that's been tremendously successful for them over the last two seasons in particular. But when you look at what City have done and what Pep Guardiola has done, he's constantly tried to evolve things because Guardiola is so afraid that teams will work out how to play against City. Mm. I think he's probably slightly too afraid of that and tends to change things a bit too early. But you do wonder, 
you know, if this kind of defensive record continues, whether there's little things just like switching the ball beyond Liverpool's press to the man on the opposite side because Salah and Mane don't tend to track back. Just little things like that that are creating a slightly higher proportion of chances than we've been accustomed to seeing from Liverpool. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. One thing getting to the top and another thing to stay there, of course. Uh, United, an eye-catching defensive display on the weekend, <laughs> conceding six against Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, there might be people who looked at, at the result and specifically the red card that came in the first half with the score at 2-1 uh, and used that to make something of an excuse for, for what followed. Uh, what do you make of that? What was so bad about United's defensive display? Yeah, I mean, difficult to know where to begin. I mean, I don't think that the back four received great protection from ahead, but I mean, the back four themselves, I thought, were, were dreadful. The first goal, the Ndombele goal. I mean, <laughs> Spurs try a hopeful long throw into the into the box. The ball's on the edge of the box. And I think there's four or five United touches that take the ball from the edge of their own box to basically almost an open goal from six or seven yards out. I mean, it was just absolutely chaotic. I thought Luke Shaw in particular seemed really unsure of his... Uh, positional responsibilities was always coming inside, completely leaving one half of the defence open. And yeah, this is a concern for Manchester United because when you look at them last season, really even going back to the Mourinho reign, the Van Howe reign, their defensive record's usually been quite good. Their issue has been at home to weaker sides. They haven't been very good at scoring enough goals. They haven't been good at breaking down defences. But yeah, for it to be a, a real defensive horror show is a bit of a new story. For Manchester United so again it's probably too soon to say that you know this is a long-term problem but um, you know that certainly wasn't an issue for them last season. Not a great one for fans of nominative determinism when Luke Shaw is so unsure uh, of himself <laughs> on the pitch although I note that that for Tottenham Eric Dyer actually played pretty well in that one so maybe it's sort of one all in, 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 that, in that regard. Uh, any other notable stats or underlying numbers for other sides in the Premier League in terms of goals against? Yeah I mean we're always guilty of kind of looking at the big teams first and foremost but I think maybe the most interesting one is Burnley. They've considered eight goals so far from only 3.7 expected goals against. I mean, Burnley have traditionally been the side who left the XG guys dumbfounded because they always conceded less than their XG. Um, so again, there's no reason to think this is a particular long-term problem. They are defending in pretty much the same way. But yeah, it's a big shift. I mean, Nick Pope nearly won the Golden Gloves last year. Edison just about beat him. Pope's had a very difficult start to the campaign. Uh, mistake against Newcastle for that penalty that Callum Wilson scored. So yeah, Burnley have been an interesting one. And again, maybe a uh, you know, almost the team version of David McGoldrick in terms of they sum up quite why this Premier League 
campaign has been so goal heavy so far not a great time for for those numbers just specifically from nick pope's point of view we have over the length of our of our lifespan so far on this podcast seemingly touched on every young english goalkeeper or not young every english goalkeeper in contention for the england number one spot and i i think based on everything we'd said up to this point we had come to the conclusion that pope was a little unlucky not to have displaced Jordan Pickford already before, you know, before the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see how that moves forward now because Pickford continues to uh, dumbfound people with, with new ways to concede goals. But uh, Pope's performance is, is probably going to have to pick up as, as well a little bit if he's to take the gloves. Uh, at, at the other end of the spectrum here, it seems that our friend Jose Mourinho is not living up to his own managerial stereotype. Yeah, 12 goals in four games is a particularly spectacular rate for <laughs> Mourinho's side. Uh, that's come from 9.7 XG, incidentally, so it's still pretty high. In fact, that is the highest in the Premier League. I think Tottenham have probably prospered because they seem to have been fortunate enough to play against quite high and quite disorganised defensive lines. The obvious example of that is Son going in behind again and again uh, in that game against Southampton when he was assisted four times by Harry Kane, the first time that's ever happened in the Premier League. Uh, he also scored a pretty similar goal against Manchester United from a Kane assist. I mean, Son is, is you know, another individual who has just completely outscored his XG. He's on 1.8 and he's scored six goals so far this season. Mm. I think there's an interesting thing here with maybe a slight flaw in the XG models. I mean, these are being updated all the time and it's something that Tom Warville, when he returns, can speak about better than me. But I think it's fair to say there's probably still some anomalies in terms of how clear goal-scoring opportunities are and how they're represented. I mean, when you look at those Son chances, I'm not sure you would say you would expect him only to score 1.8 goals from those chances. So, yeah, that's maybe a, an area where the XG doesn't completely explain everything. But, yeah, Son has been in sensational form. I mean, six goals and just looks, I think, as good as, as he's ever been in terms of his assuredness in front of goal. I think we've spoken about two-footedness on this podcast not long ago. And certainly from a shooting perspective purely, Son's two-footedness really does stand out. And I dare say that's another way of of uh, not overcoming XG, but overperforming it, I suppose. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if yourself, for example, who has no left foot at all, <laughs> if you have a big chance on your left foot in the middle of the goal, eight yards out, that's going to have the same value, uh, understandably, as your chance with uh, the same chance with your right foot. Uh, and you can see how that could lead to a bit of over or under performance. Uh, and with Son, because he's so both-footed, I suppose that that kind of allows him to to not miss out on those high XG chances that, that just come to the wrong side. They've obviously been playing against some teams who have played some remarkably high lines, that Southampton side in particular, from, from their first game of the season. I mean, Mourinho must lick his lips when he's preparing for a match and sees a high line and a team that wants to dominate possession. I mean, you've studied him about as much as any other manager, I dare say, in the modern era. He absolutely thrives on this stuff, doesn't he? Like, you know, if it, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Chelsea up at Liverpool in 2014, was it? Uh, that 2-0 mm -hmm. win. Uh, the the Inter performance against Barcelona uh, in the Champions League in 2010. I mean, this is his dream scenario, isn't it? Yeah, and maybe more so than ever when you look at the squad or, or the first 11 that he's assembling. I mean, with Son on one flank and hopefully Gareth Bale on the other. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that, you know, Harry Kane is increasingly playing a deeper role, is increasingly prominent in terms of assisting. It's almost like Mourinho is 
moving towards the model we saw Guardiola use for, for Barcelona with a false nine and two wide mm. attackers. The same model Klopp is using at Liverpool. Obviously, Mourinho has really been a, a bit more old school than that and has always been you know, the opposite end of the spectrum to Guardiola in particular. But he, almost by the players at his disposal, yeah, is, is moving towards playing that way and it's certainly worked very well so far. What about some of the teams who have been plundering goals to start the season? Everton and Leicester have both got 12 in their four games so far. Uh, overperformance or really exciting based on the underlying numbers? What do we think about these two? I, I, I've already got Jamie Vardy smashing in loads of penalties at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I think Everton's certainly the more interesting side. There's some level of overperformance um, for wins from four, but they do look a really good side. I mean, a completely different team from last year in midfield. Obviously, James Rodriguez has brought something that I don't think many other uh, Premier League sides can rely upon, which is just almost a constant source of creativity. And obviously, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who uh, is joint top scorer so far with Son, he's overperforming his numbers, but not to the extent that Son is. I mean, he's getting in really good goal-scoring positions. A person I really like, Calvert-Lewin, as a player. I think he's got pretty much everything you could want from a striker. He can drop deep and link play. He's got speed to go in behind. He's very, very good in the air. I think on his day, he is the complete number nine. So yeah, of those sides, I think Everton, I mean, I'm not sure they're going to challenge for the title, but they're going to be a lot closer to the Champions League challenging positions than uh, certainly than most of us expected. Any other notable sides for you on this topic, Michael, before we let you go? Yeah, it's West Brom again. I mean, going forward, they, uh, they've they scored five goals from 1.5 XG. So West Brom basically decide who sum everything up. They are conceding loads of chances and goals, and then they're scoring a lot from not many chances. So uh, yeah, we're going to have to do a deep dive on West Brom at some point. The amazing thing about them is, even in the championship, even in securing automatic promotion from the championship they just couldn't find a striker that was scoring basically uh charlie austin played at times and his xg numbers were very high but he basically couldn't hit a barn door uh hal robson carnu they sort of they sort of ended up using him as more of a more of a linker as a striker than than an out and out goal scorer and i don't necessarily think they have fully solved that issue yet but in players like Dian Garner and Matias Pereira. They have these these quality ball strikers who really are a threat uh, from range as well. And they, they had a very good set-piece record as well in the Championship. I'm not sure if that has translated just yet, but Shemi Ajayi and Hagazi, if he plays, both of them trotting up from the back for set-pieces is, is quite the threat as well. So we are going to keep a very close eye on West Brom. They're a team that you have flagged up twice in this podcast today as a, an interesting side and one that we're going to keep a close eye on. I think there's, a, there's an interesting podcast to do in general, one that we will sign Warville up for when he's back and match fit pod fit uh, is 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 to take a look at you know the scenario of being promoted from the championship to the premier league how to approach it what successful teams who have stayed up and and built on that from there have done and specifically what teams who have not succeeded have have done and how they've approached things i think that'd be a good topic for the future Uh, if you haven't listened to our entire back catalog by the way as i mentioned at the top of the pod there's really something for everyone i think we've we've spoken about all sorts over the last nine months and if you scroll back down the feed i reckon you'll strike gold i think you'll find something that hopefully if you haven't heard before you'll think is worth 
listen. So please do delve back into the zonal marking back catalogue because we do try and keep things um, fairly timeless. Um, this one not included. We thought this was a good time to reflect on the start of the season, some of the underlying numbers and some of the eye-catching goal numbers as well. Uh, Michael Cox, thank you very much for, for joining me as ever. My pleasure. And just to reiterate to everyone, please don't unsubscribe. We do want you to carry on listening. Thank you. There we go. He said it. Uh, make sure you are very much subscribed to this podcast feed. Make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well if you want to be reading everything that Michael is writing, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, the place to go to get your annual subscription. And we look forward to you joining us again next week on the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.